On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Well, it's very difficult to know. I mean, when Liz Truss was first appointed as foreign minister almost a year ago, we felt there was a, a new broom in town and that, you know, things would be done differently. And there was definitely a much more positive atmosphere for the first couple of months. But then we found that things simply weren't happening. Uh, literally weren't happening, that uh, while there was a lot of talk and there was good discussions, that things were not moving really on at all uh, at a technical level. And that's, and then, of course, you had the Assembly elections in Northern Ireland. Nobody wanted to be having this kind of controversial talks process while that was going on. So things went into abeyance somewhat. And then that, that has continued since, and the, the British leadership election hasn't exactly helped that. But at the end of the day, the British still have legal obligations. They still have to do what they've uh, said they would do, um, and it's no doubt is in their economic interest, and that I think is becoming clearer all the time. They don't want a trade war with the EU. We certainly don't want a trade war with Britain. Um, but at the end of the day, um, they will have to decide not to ratchet things up. Um, just rewinding there a few seconds, that you, you thought when Liz Truss took over as Foreign Secretary that there might be the momentum for a little bit more movement, but then it didn't translate into practice. Why, why do you think that was? Do you think that there were interests in Whitehall at play or that Liz Truss was more interested in, in the facade of progress than actually achieving it? No, I suppose what I would have suspected at the time was that Boris Johnson was given the direction and, and had changed his mind, possibly uh, around Christmas. Um, I, we felt that I suppose Liz Truss was pragmatic. I think she's shown herself to be pragmatic uh, over the years, particularly uh, when she was against Brexit. I think she showed a very pragmatic side to her there because it was the pragmatic approach uh, to be against Brexit. Um, and just things changed, fell apart. And I, I fear that things have changed further now. When you look at the leadership election, you look at who's backing who, um, and look, all we can do is say, Britain, you have these legal obligations. You have to comply with them. It's not open to you uh, to pick and choose what you do. You are one country among many uh, that has obligations, and those obligations um, give you obligations, but they also give you uh, benefits as well uh, in terms of trade, benefits in terms of interactions with the European Union. Um, and ultimately, it's in everybody's interest to have increased trade. OK, if it was your theory that Liz Truss was somewhat held back by Boris Johnson steering things from the top, do you still have any optimism that she might be responsible for a reset if she were to be elected? Or given the fact that she's been responsible for this Northern Ireland Protocol bill and she's made a lot in the Tory hustings about being responsible for that, do you think the door for a reset is closed? No, I, d- I actually don't think the door for a reset is closed. I said I, we've seen her pragmatic and open-minded side before. Um, Prime Ministers, when they take office, naturally take on uh, their own aura as well, their own um, vision of where the job lands. I'm not sure that anybody would have predicted when John Major took over uh, that he would have been a really critical uh, part of the Northern Ireland peace process. Uh, So I don't think you can predict what any Prime Minister will do. I'm not sure that as she gets into the job of Prime Minister, that she would be as unpredictable as Boris Johnson was, because literally you wouldn't know what would happen from week to week. I think I suspect she will set a pattern, uh, and I'd be hopeful that overall that pattern uh, will be good, because look, the Tory, what the Tories are doing at the moment is not winning them electoral success, despite the fact that it appeals to a certain base, but it doesn't appeal to the broad uh, mass of, of the British public. Um, so I think that they will look at this and say, right, where do we have to change tack? And I think uh, they need to look at Northern Ireland. They need to look at um, how the protocol is benefiting Northern Ireland. They need to look at how the instability 
uh, in Northern Ireland, which is caused by British government, you know, prevarication, um, how that affects not just Northern Ireland, which it does, but it also affects the image of the British government. And I think the British government, uh, British governments and political parties have done well uh, politically by championing peace, because, of course, people like peace. Um, and people will vote for that, so I think I think but, they, they will look at this, and I hope that she will. But is there a political dividend from from championing or from from advocating for peace now, when most people in Northern Ireland see peace as something of a foregone conclusion, or it's normal now, so that there is no political premium or dividend reaped from advocating for what is basically the status quo? Well, it is normal now, and thankfully it's normal now. It's normal because the Good Friday Agreement is there. It's normal because uh, we have these special arrangements in Northern Ireland to make sure uh, that it can progress. Mm. Uh, But those arrangements are now 24 years old, and peace is now the established norm there. So no British government is going to be able to make political capital or to reap dividends from advocating for peace when people do consider it to be normalised. It is normalised, but it's it's not it's normalising, but it's not it's not completely normal. I mean, the the Northern Ireland economy has significant potential that simply hasn't been tapped into. Uh, there, it doesn't have a functioning assembly. It doesn't have a functioning government. It has cross border bodies with the Republic of Ireland, which are an integral part of uh, the Good Friday Agreement, which are not functioning. The British Irish relationship is not functioning to the extent that it needs to. So I don't think we can say that things are normal or completely normalised. Um, and I think that there is a dividend there for any British political party to have that functionality completely in place. I mean, the Tories have their own majority there. They don't need to depend on nationalist or unionist, indeed, not that they've ever depended on nationalists in the House of Commons, but uh, they don't need to depend on, on unionists. They can be unionist while recognising that the Good Friday Agreement says that actually there are uh, two identities there that need to be cherished and respected. And each is entitled to it. Um, so, so I would look to see, to hope uh, that there will be a change. Um, there is nothing electorally for a Tory party to be at war with Britain economically, um, or to be at war with Europe economically. Yeah, can I just put it to you, though, you've just used the word hope twice in a couple of minutes, and there'll be some listeners listening to this this lunchtime who'll say that you seem to be acting more out of hope than expectation, that Liz Truss would, would be a new broom. Look, I mean, at the end of the day, the evidence of the, the leadership election doesn't give you huge comfort in terms of where the debates are at. We haven't really heard a lot about Northern Ireland, including in their own Northern Ireland-based uh, debate. Um, so so we really don't have a huge amount to go on, except that people who've expressed, I suppose, extreme Euroscepticism are backing Liz Truss predominantly. Um, but I think that she, I would, sorry, use the word hope. I would hope uh, that she would be her own person, and I think we have reason to believe that she will be her own person. Everybody who takes that office becomes their own person, uh, and realizes that they, th- there is a greater weight than just the day-to-day politics uh, of the job. Uh, she has shown some of that in the past, and other prime ministers have shown that in the past. And that's on that basis, I'm saying uh, that there is hope. What I can say in terms of us, the Irish government, there will always be an open door uh, to really good relations with Britain, with the United Kingdom, on the basis of respect uh, for the Good Friday Agreement, on the basis of respect for agreements that Britain uh, has entered into. Uh, okay. with the European Union as well. Uh, I want to move on to, to uh, party political matters, but just before I do, just uh, again, staying in your brief as, as Minister for European Affairs, it'll be six months this week since Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine and there's been four or five different rounds of sanctions in the meantime. Do you think they're working? Oh, I think they are, because that Russia has um, is suffering hugely economically 
Uh, we don't really know how to take the temperature of the Russian people. Of course, they're going to, by and large, support the Russian government um, in, in its endeavours. But we do see evidence of some instability uh, within Russia. Uh, Ukraine is, if it's going to win this war, it's going to be won militarily. We're not involved in that particular side of it. Uh, but it, it it is very, very difficult for them. Um, but well, they what's are the instability showing... that you see in Russia at the moment? I mean, for example, the car bomb yesterday, um, it's it's hard to know. Was that an internal, an internal murder? Um, assassination at the highest levels that went slightly wrong uh, or was it from outside? Nobody really, really knows. Um, there is certainly some kind of serious setbacks from the military side uh, from a Russian point of view uh, and that's never never good for internal stability. Um, we have to do the sanctions as a matter of morality because it is morally and legally wrong uh, for Russia to invade Ukraine. Uh, we have to put the squeeze on Putin. The European Union is basically a peace project. We're not. We're basically not a military organisation, uh, so we're not going to get directly involved in a war. Uh, but we have to do whatever we can to make sure uh, that, first of all, we're protected, uh, that we protect the third world from the impact of food inflation and food scarcity. Um, and part of that is putting the squeeze on Russia and it's very very difficult and I certainly don't have any easy answers to mm. that but we'll, we'll continue to support them uh, just as, long as, as long as they don't hurt but the idea of all these sanctions is that they hurt Russia more than they hurt us uh, and that's always been the case and that's why we haven't raced ahead and sanctioned absolutely everything coming out of Russia but do, uh, but but do, you, think, do you think that is the case when, when the product of those sanctions is uh, rising fuel prices and it may mean some energy shortages this winter and all of the the uh, industrial unease that all that causes with inflation being as, as high as it is and all of the domestic instability that that might uh, pursue across Europe all of that is happening in countries which have introduced the sanctions and yet we don't see very much evidence of any kind of domestic instability in Russia so you could argue that it is hurting those who are responsible for the sanctions more than those who are supposed to be the targets well I wouldn't say that because I mean the Russian economy is completely is basically imploding um, they are in a far worse position than we are but yes you are right I mean those of us who are taking these sanctions have to take the measure of them to ensure that they're not uh, hurting us more than they're hurting the Russians but the, but Russia itself is massively contributing to this instability. That was happening uh, before the war. We saw prices rise in the autumn of last year. There was a lot of agitation about that at that time. Um, Russia has itself reduced uh, quantities of gas going into Europe uh, at very, very short notice. So the idea this is this is all about sanctions is not entirely the case. We haven't sanctioned gas. Uh, but w- what we want to do is uh, to move away from our, this massive dependence that a lot of the European Union has uh, on Russian gas. And that's going to have to mean, um, which is already taking place, urgent action. Uh, and that, that's already happening in the, in the more medium to longer term. It means we need to move to renewables to, to start producing okay. much more of our own energy. Okay. Uh, on domestic issues, uh, today is the centenary uh, commemorations at Bail on the Blaw. It's the first time I think that a Fianna Fáil leader, let alone a serving Fianna Fáil Taoiseach, has addressed the Bail on the Blaw commemorations. Um, you are a, a, something of a student of modern Irish political history and before coalition you were certainly very critical of some stances Fine Gael have taken. What do you make of the current situation where out of something of a necessity that Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, two parties who would very openly say they don't very much admire each other, now find themselves in coalition and where a Fianna Fáil leader is addressing Bail on the Blaw? Well, of course, Brian Lenehan addressed Bail, Bail on the Blaw more than 10 years ago um, before he died. And that was a very significant moment at the time. And I think what we're commemorating today is not 
day-to-day politics or day-to-day government, it's really uh, a, significant, a massively significant figure uh, in modern Irish history. And I think that we're all thinking about the civil war at the moment. I think for most of us, we understand uh, that it's very, very complex. I mean, look, I have two sides of my family. Uh, my my granddad Byrne was a guard uh, from Mayo. I have no, he joined almost 100 years ago. Uh, I have no doubt he was on the pro-treaty side if he joined the Gardaí at that particular time. My other granddad, granddad Hillard, that family famous uh, Meads, you know, anti-treaty family. Uh, Mick Hillard um, would have been involved in um, in the Civil War, but also in the War of Independence as an extremely young man. So I think my family history is complex and divided. Uh, and that's the same, for, uh, particularly as we go further than the generations, that's the same for a lot of people out there. So I think that it is really appropriate and dignified, not for the leader of Fianna Fáil as such, but for the Taoiseach of the country uh, to be addressing this commemoration today uh, on behalf of all of us. And I think Michal is going to treat this in a uh, very dignified manner. Uh, he himself um, is, a, is a, basically a history professional, uh, as in a history teacher. He will fully understand uh, the moment today and I think will treat it as such. This is a moment to bring the country together, a moment to take the focus away uh, from day-to-day politics and budget speculation, all that sort of stuff. We have mm. to rise above all of that today. Uh, given the day that's in it, uh, I'm going to ask this question anyway, and you might think that this is a question with an obvious answer or that it might be a silly question to ask, but I'm not sure every listener would think the same. Uh, what is the difference nowadays between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael? Well, I think the easiest way to put it, I mean, look, we, we did come from the Civil War tradition. There's also evidence that the, the tribal divisions were there a long time before that. There was some very interesting research done about that. Uh, in terms of where people came from. And perhaps those tribal divisions still exist to some extent. I I think there's been a big change in the last few years um, in terms of the way people vote. Um, But the memories of the Civil War are still um, very, very strong. I mean, I'm, you know, I would have people on my campaign team whose uncles or granduncles were killed uh, by the assassinated by the Free State government at that particular time. And, And that memory is still very, very hard for people. And I think there has to be uh, an understanding of that as well. But also on our side then, an understanding that, you know, the eventually we did, under De Valera, go in um, to to the Free State and gradually change, change the thing as well in terms of going mm. as far as uh, removing Governor-General and, and bringing yeah. the Constitution. Uh, le- so, le- legitimate as those differences are, and no one is going to be able to sort of square all of those differences over the course of a, a, a short radio interview, but... A lot of people would think that that's a pretty striking first answer to give, that if you're asking no, about no, well, the difference I think nowadays... It's important. I think it's important because, uh, well, I mean, I, I want to acknowledge, uh, all I wanted to do there was acknowledge that those feelings are still there among people who are very much alive today. So I want to acknowledge okay. that first. I, I wasn't saying that was the main, okay. the main issue. But in terms of the more modern politics then, where we are, I think in terms of if you look at the European parties that we're members of, Fine Gael is a member of the EPP, which is really on the, the, the right of the political spectrum. We're a member of the um, Alliance for Liberals and Democrats of Europe, Renew Europe, which is in the middle of the political spectrum. So Fianna Fáil is a centrist party, Fine Gael a right-wing party. The policies aren't hugely different, let's be honest, but there are differences. And I think us joining ALDI, I think it was 2008 or 2009 mm-hmm. at a European level, actually enabled us to start expressing ourselves more as a party uh, in in terms of the modern politics and getting involved more uh, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a European level politically. We were always highly involved at government level, etc. But uh, So I think I think that's where the difference is like. They're not huge, uh, but they are there. Um, and I think, I think we, Fianna Fáil certainly does not see itself 
uh, as a party of political right, no matter what our detractors say. Before I let you go, your fellow Minister of State, Robert Troy, has found himself in a bit of bother this week, having to make retroactive amendments to his annual disclosures of members' interests. He's uh, conceded in the last 36 hours or so that he is a landlord in a property which until quite recently wasn't registered with the RTB. There'd be many people who'd say that this doesn't pass the smell test and that there is something fundamentally fishy about a minister not disclosing all these property interests or not being fully compliant with the RTB rules. Well, I think Robert has given a, a full uh, and comprehensive statement about uh, his declarations of interests. I mean, if you look at the declarations of interest, uh, the vast majority of them uh, were were in the category, I suppose, of properties that he felt that he he had the view that he wasn't obliged to register them because he didn't know them at the end of the year. A number that's of them a very naive pre- interpretation, though, isn't it? Like you can't pretend well, that it's I, only I think, supposed to be a snapshot in time every New Year's Eve. It has to well, be something I, of a living, breathing I, document. I, I, I think naive is probably a good word. Um, and he has apologised fully uh, to the Taoiseach, uh, to his constituents, to SIPO in relation to this, has sought advice uh, from SIPO uh, in relation to it and has put in uh, amended declarations and has dealt with the Residential Tenancies Board issue in respect of one property uh, that was rented um, certainly within the last year that it turns out wasn't uh, registered with the RTB. These registrations and declarations are really, really important. Uh, and I think all of us should make sure and that they're absolutely accurate. I mean, people every day make mistakes. There's no doubt about that. Robert has made quite a number of mistakes, but I think it is incumbent on us as ministers um, to make sure that we uh, do this to the to the great, you know, comply mm. to the absolute extent uh, of what our legal obligations are. And Robert has acknowledged that he's fallen short there, and I can be absolutely certain that this will not happen again. And furthermore. Uh, there is a review by Minister Michael McGrath in relation to the ethics legislation as well. Uh, and I look forward to seeing uh, what proposals uh, he emerges with as well. OK, we will leave it there. Fianna Fáil TD for me, the Eastern Minister of State for European Affairs, Thomas Brown. Thank you very much for joining us this lunchtime on The Record. We'll be talking more about the Tory leadership election with Will Hutton after this. On The Record with Gavin Riley, Brought to you by PwC. Sunday morning at 11. On News Talk.